Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. I hope your Bibles are starting to fall open there on Sunday mornings as we continue our march through the book of, well, the first chapter of Romans, I should say, as we continue our study there. Our text this morning will be verses 8 to 10, but we want to put it in context of the the paragraph and the thought process here. So we're going to read verses 8 to 15 this morning. We're big on context, and so we want to make sure that we are placing these verses where they should be. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. Paul writes, as he is superintended by the Holy Spirit, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and I have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest. Of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Let us go to the word of God before we go. Uh, let's go to prayer before we go to the word of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have given it to us, and you have revealed yourself because we could not know you unless you had. And so we praise and thank you that it is written in our language that you have given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate it for us so that we might know its truth. And so this morning, again, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us that, you're, that we would be willing to submit to the Holy Spirit and be filled, and therefore that we would go out transformed by these truths into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray in your name. Amen. We continue to live in a society that is becoming less personable. We live in a society where people continue to get away from face-to-face interaction. They spend more time isolated. They spend more time on electronic devices. And in some ways, in a world that has more communication than we have ever had before, and people are in touch with more people, have more friends than you could imagine, at least on Facebook, they find it hard to sit in a room and talk with a live 3D person. They cannot control that environment. In fact, it is, it is uh, uncomfortable. People are messy. 
And so people prefer the isolation of being able to communicate from behind a keyboard or over the phone or however that takes place. And in many ways that is affecting the church because the church has decided that guess what? Fellowship in the church isn't such a big deal because guess what we can do? We can fly into church We'll get there right when the service starts, and we don't want to mistime that. And as soon as he says amen, we can be out the doors before that echo stops. We don't have to see anybody. We don't have to talk to anybody. We've done our spiritual service, and we're off. And that's really the good of the bad group, because there's also a group that says, guess what? There's a preacher on TV. Our, you know what, our, our preacher actually, our, and our church actually live stream. I can do this in my jammies, right? I can get my spiritual top off and that's it. That's all I need to do. But the Bible really knows nothing of that. The Christian faith is not a lone ranger faith. It's not a faith where we all just have our own beliefs. We have our own little intimate walk with God. And we, we kind of go past other believers like ships in the night. And we just kind of exist. The Christian faith is a personal faith and a faith that is meant to be lived in relationship. We are meant to be in relationship with, with together. In fact, all of the pictures of the church point us back to intimacy. It pictures, the, 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 first of all, the church is pictured as a body all the pieces fitting together and, and, and giving support and giving feed to each part of the body. Now, I don't know how many of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, left your arm or your foot at home today. Certainly, I hope you brought your brains. Okay, but, but we, we know that, right? You bring your whole body because it's inseparable. And if we look at the other picture of the, of the church, it is what? Of a family. And a family is meant to be in relationship. We don't put all the members of the family in separate rooms and text each other. At least I sure hope we don't. Right? And there would be no families if mom and dad just text each other. In other words, family was meant to be together. And it is God's way of actually producing the next generation of teaching godliness. And so the church is to be the family of God where we get together and encourage one another and teach one another and exhort one another in the truths of the Word of God and to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we go to our text, we're going to be dealing with with, with a text that deals with relationships and commitments to one another. How are we to be committed to one another? What are the things that are necessary for us as we, go to the, as we come together? What should we look like? Now we said as we started the book of Romans, he, Paul simply started with really telling us why we should read this book. And as we opened the scroll, or as for us, we opened our Bibles and we looked, scanned down those first few verses, we saw that, first of all, that we wanted to read this book because Paul wrote it. Paul was, we know who Paul is, we know that he was set apart for the gospel, that he was a special representative coming under 
the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring it. We recognize that it was about the gospel of God that was sourced in him, that it was a gospel that was predicted in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the, in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, centered on the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, a gospel that needed to be responded to, a, a gospel that was for, is universal, one gospel for all, and it was for the glory of God. And we saw because of the audience, which was not just the Roman audience, but believers of all kinds, those who are called, those who are beloved, those who are called as saints, it's, this book is for you. But now he transitions really into an area where he's going to be, uh, as he finishes that section, to a, a section of thanksgiving and prayer. And this is typical of his openings, and this is what he does. He, he now transitions to this area of thanksgiving. Now in this, he's going to give us some historical circumstances behind the writing of this letter. He's going to give some personal interaction with them. But if we were just to see those interactions and we just to look at the history and the circumstances, I think we're going to miss some of the richness that is in this text. Because in it, Paul gives us a glimpse into his relationship with the Roman church. He give a heart into how he interacts with them. And we can see his mindset, as it were, towards fellow believers. And Paul teaches us by his commitments to the local, to the local believers, commitments that we should make in all of our Christian relationships. These are the things that should exemplify us in community. And so as we begin this section between eight, verses 8 to 15, we're going to see eight commitments that we need to be making to our fellow brothers and sisters. Now, luckily, we're only going to get through three of them this morning, so we're, we're going to get home for lunch. But we're going to go through three of them here in verses 8 to 10. And we will see this morning, first of all, that we must thank God for all our brothers and sisters. We need to be thankful for all of them. And we need to be, have an attitude of gratitude that God has placed them in the family of God. Secondly, we, must, we see that we're in verse 9, that we need to be praying for our fellow believers. We need to actually be spending time in prayer. And we've touched on that before. And thirdly, we have to enjoy fellowship with fellow believers. We actually have to enjoy being with one another. That is something that is necessary for us as believers. And so we'll see these three commitments. And as we go through, we'll ask God, help me to be committed to these things to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, that leads us to our first commitment in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Read along with me. First, I thank, God, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So he starts with this little, with this call to thankfulness and he starts with this little word, first. 
Now, when you normally see first, you're going to look down and you're going to see where's, where's second and third and fourth. And if you've ever read any authors and they start with first and they don't go to second and third, you're kind of irritated and you spend a long time and, you, and it's difficult. But Paul here, I don't think, is intending to make a list. When he says first, he says this is a first priority. In other words, this is important to me. It's important to me and I want you to listen first. And the first thing that is important to me and I want you to see is that I am thankful to God for you all. Now, it's interesting because thankfulness is high on Paul's list. It's high on his list of things. In fact, he starts 12 of his 13 books this way. 12 of his 13 books that, are, that we know for sure are given to him. I think, the, well, that 14th book that I, I think that he wrote, he doesn't start this way. But Paul says, I, I, I'm, thank, I'm, I'm thankful. Now, Paul doesn't say, I thanked God for you. Nor does he says, say, I will thank God for you. He says, I thank God for you. And the idea here is what? I, I am presently giving thanks for you. This is something that I do as, as, as habitual. I just continually give thanks to God for you. This is a habit of mine. It's a priority of mine, and it's something that I continually do. Now, notice he doesn't just say, I give thanks. He says, I give thanks what? To my God. Now, that's actually a stunning statement. You wouldn't hear any pagan saying that. In pagan religions, there was not an intimate relationship. There was kind of a, a relationship where... You may worship that God, but you are scared of that God and you try to appease that God. But Paul says, this is actually my God. And there's an intimacy there. He, he identifies a personal relationship with him. And, and Paul is really taking what we would say, what the new covenant was, which was promised and said what? I will be their God and they shall be what? Be my people. And for Paul, this wasn't abstract theology. This was actually his life. He had an intimate relationship with God. And he says in Acts 27, 23, when he described God as the one to whom I belong and whom I serve. And Paul says, "I, I have an intimate relationship and I'm thanking my God. And because he's my God, there is an obligation on my part to give him thanks. There's an, I, I am obligated. He deserves the thanks. This is the object of my thankfulness. It's directed to my God, the one who deserves my worship. And if you're a believer here today, that's you. He's your God. He is your personal, loving God. That's what a genuine believer does. He has a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and the Godhead. Now, as we continue on, you'll notice he adds something that is easy to, to brush over. 
And it's, it's something that maybe, we, but maybe for some of us, we look at that and, and we, would, we would go, what does that mean? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. And, and, and it's kind of like, what, what does that mean? I mean? This is the only place in Scripture that he actually makes this statement. Paul, what on earth do you mean? Well, Paul is saying this. I cannot have access to God the Father except through what? The Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if Jesus Christ had not died on the cross, if he had not been that perfect sacrifice, and if it had not been accepted by God, there was no way that I could have access to him. But now... Because Jesus Christ has died and risen and is seated at the right hand of the Father, he is what? He is now our high priest. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also what? Intercedes for us. And now Jesus Christ is not just, is, is the personal agent by which we go to the Father. He now takes our prayers to the Father. We now pray through him. We now have access through what he has accomplished to the Father. And it is only because of Christ, Ephesians 5.20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God even the Father. It's now made possible through Him. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruits of the lips that gives thanks to His name. It is through Christ that we are able to give thanks. And so Paul says, I give thanks, the object of my thanks is, is God, my God. And he says, I do it through the agency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what do you give thanks to God for? Well, Paul tells us, for you all, he says, for you all. For you all because of your faith. Paul thanked God here for every genuine believer in Rome. He says, I'm giving thanks for all of you. Now you're going to say, all of you? Yes, all of you. He says, I give thanks for all of you. Why? Because they're great people? Because they're all, like the Roman church had no problems? They were all mature believers? No. But Paul knew that they were in what? The family of God. They had been called by him, set apart from him, and therefore what? They were in the same family. We have the same father. And Paul says, I can give thanks because you are part of that family. Now Paul gave thanks, and he says, because of their faith. And again, it's kind of interesting because why would he, why would he praise their faith? Why would, he get, well, actually, why would he thank God for their faith? Well, it's pretty simple. God gave them the faith, remember? We, we, just, we, just, we just covered that earlier. 
We saw that in verse 6 and 7. Among whom you are also what? The called of Jesus Christ. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's the one who called you. You are beloved of God, called as saints. You're set apart for himself. And Paul says, I, I can forgive I praise God for this faith because this God gets all the glory for your faith. That's why he says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says in Ephesians 2, it, meaning salvation, including faith, right? For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourself. All of it, faith, grace, all of it is of God. He says, is a gift of God. It's from God. He's the one who accomplishes it. Therefore, he receives all glory for your salvation. And this is why we are so insistent, because God is all about his glory, and he takes glory for salvation. We must not rob him of the glory that is due his name. And so Paul says, I thank God, my God, for you all and your faith, because God has called you set you apart, made you his own, set his love upon you. But Paul also says, and notice this, that Paul says, I thank God because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, again, Paul's speaking in hyperbole here. He's not saying that every single person in the whole world knew about Paul. He's not saying that everyone in every single village and every single continent you know, except for those who, who had not the language skills, knew who Paul was, that's, or, or who knew who the Romans was. He's not saying that. But this is similar to when Jesus was going around and they said the whole world is following him. Was the whole world following him? Of course not, because they wouldn't be re rejecting him, right? That's not the whole world, not everyone. But the idea is many people were hearing about the Romans. Their faith was being spread. In other words, the, their, the, the, their faith as believers came through Rome and believers left Rome and it was scattering to all the churches and people were hearing about the faith of the Roman church. And so the Christians in the first century were hearing, and the churches there were hearing about the Roman church. In fact, Paul says, and, and we talked about this last week in Romans 16, verse 19, that their faith was spreading, he says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. That is, all places all over the empire. And now, it, their faith was being heard throughout the world, and it was being talked about. We would say, what was in Rome didn't stay in Rome, Right? It spread, and it started to go around. And so there was, and maybe even an encouragement to the other churches, because in this pagan city, in the middle of a pagan uh, empire, the word of God was going strong, and their faith was being heard. Their transformed lives Right? The gospel is transformational. It just doesn't save you. It transforms you. And now the story of their faithfulness and the story of God's transformation in their life was now spreading across the empire. And so Paul says, I, I, first, I give thanks to my God 
because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And this is typical of Paul. This is just typical of Paul as he writes to the churches. He continually speaks and gives thanks to God for the work that God is doing in their lives. We saw that even as we went through First and Second Thessalonians. We saw how Paul continually, said, continually gave thanks. First Thessalonians 1-2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he says, we give thanks to who? To God. And he gave thanks to them for God's working in their life. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting. Paul says, I give thanks to God. Now, Paul is not just giving platitudes here. He's not saying, this sounds good in a letter. I think I'll, I'll just say this. I mean, they can't see the look on my face as I write this, you know. Ooh. He's not doing that. He's not begrudgingly saying thank you. Paul has a genuine heart. And the, the crazy thing about it is Paul was even thankful for the Corinthians church, which was probably the weakest and the worst church. You just don't want a pastor in Corinth. We talked about that too when we went through 1 Corinthians. But Paul could look past their weaknesses. He could look past their problems and see what God was doing in their heart. They, the genuine believers, Paul could see that God was working in their lives. In fact, if we look at uh, he, he says in, in, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 2, showing tolerance to one another in love. Paul loved them with the love of Christ that allowed him to be tolerant and to appreciate them in spite of their disobedience. Well, we recognize that in the church, we're dealing with different kinds of people. In fact, often the world looks at that eclectic group of misfits and wonders how we get together. But as we look at one another, we need to recognize that God is working in each one of us. We have different maturity levels. We have different understanding. We have a different, even a different appetite for spiritual things. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. But when we look at each other, do we look at what God is doing in our life or do we look at our brothers and sisters and say, there's a lot of work there. There's a lot of work there, right? And we have a tendency to dwell on the negative instead of, being, instead of looking and saying, this is a blood-bought son or daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and he is of value because he is in the son and I will love him and I will see what God has do, is doing in his life and I will pray for them and I will pray for their good. Do we focus on people's strengths? Do we focus on the good things that God is doing in their lives? Or do we mutter and complain about the things that are still left to be done. 
Let us be a church that focuses on them and gives thanks to God for what God is doing in the lives of other believers in our church. Let us have an attitude of gratitude for what God is doing. Let us see people as God sees them. Let us see them as those who God died for and saved. They are in the family of God. Don't become embittered. Don't become angry. Become thankful. And when we're always looking at the negative and we're always thinking that people need to be better, you're never going to be thankful. You're never going to be grateful. You're never going to be a person who gives thanks for God's work. So let's be a church. Let's not be famous for our pastor. No worry there. Right? Some churches are famous for their architecture. I think we're safe there. Stained glass windows, maybe. Uh, Their size or their wealth, right? But let's be known as a church who is thankful and thanks God for each other. Because we see God working in each other's lives. So not only are we to be thankful for our brothers and sisters, But we must pray for them. We must pray for them. Verse 9. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. And by mention you, I think verse 10 gives us a, a clue as to what Paul is talking about. Mention you in my prayers, the beginning of verse 10. So Paul begins by expressing the fact that he prayed and was praying for the Romans. He says, and notice, Paul had begun in verse 10 by saying he is my God. And now he says, for God whom what? I serve. And so it's not just my God, but it is the God whom I serve. And this this word for serve here is not the word that we get our word deacon from. But it is a word that is always used for religious service. Okay. And this word is used in a special, a special way. And it can be translated in two different ways. It can be translated worship. Or it can be translated service. This is the same word that was used in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your what? Spiritual service of worship. And so the idea here is, is that service and worship are tied together. And he's saying, I worship God and I serve him through the duties he's given me. In other words, as I obey him as I do ministry I am worshiping and that is doing service to God to serve is to worship to worship is to serve they go together and so we would say this as Paul is fulfilling his apostolic mission to share the gospel he is what he is worshiping in his service 
In other words, as he spreads that gospel, that is an act of worship. And so Paul says, I I serve for God whom I serve in my spirit. Now what does he mean by that? In my spirit. Well, Paul is simply saying, I am serving God with all of my inward man, all of my energy, all that I am. And it, it's, it expresses the sincerity of his service. Paul is, is saying, I am serving God with all that I am. It's genuine. It's from the heart. I'm, I am not, I'm not a fraud here. I'm not just doing things out of rote. I'm not just doing things and just putting my head down and doing them because I know I'm supposed to. But he says, I'm doing it genuinely because I want to, because God has put, placed in my heart that ability when we were saved, you were made a new creature and you were given new desires to follow after God. And now God has given you a new inner man and you're being built up on that inner man and he gives you the desires to follow after him. In fact, Philippians says we are to work out what he is what? Working in you. And so Paul says, I am working out what God has placed in me. This is what I I am doing. I am doing it with my full inner man, genuinely from the heart, as I do the desires of my heart because they have been produced by the Holy Spirit in me. So Paul defines the primary means of his service as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he says, in the preaching of the gospel of his son. So Paul saw his primary service to God was to proclaim the good news that God had made known to him concerning his son. Now it's interesting because Paul will actually not get to the gospel until chapter 3. In fact, after saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written by righteous by the righteous man shall live by faith, Paul then just abandons the gospel and he spends the next couple chapters telling us the bad news, how man can't get there, how no one seeks God, that men are under the judgment of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. But then he gets to chapter 3 and he begins in verse 21 and he ends the bad news in chapter 3. Three, and he begins in verse 21, and he says, But now, in contrast to the natural condition, but apart from the law, apart from the righteousness of God, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The idea isn't a new idea. It was witnessed by the law and prophets in the Old Testament. That's what we talked about. This gospel is not new. It is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. It is the righteousness of God which comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's a righteousness that comes, and it comes not by works, not by earning it, but through a righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So people can have a relationship with God, and we can be justified, we can be declared righteous, verse 24. Because of what Christ has done, he has paid the price on the cross for sin for all who would believe. And therefore, there's redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
He was a propitiation. He was a satisfaction of God's wrath. And therefore, our, if in faith in him, we can be saved. And he says, this is the gospel that I'm preaching. This is the gospel that I'm going to get to. The good news. Now notice this. If we go back to verse 9. He, he, the next phrase, is my witness. And really, this, there's been this parenthetical phrase, whom I serve in the spirit and preaching of the gospel. But he says, for God is what? My witness. And Paul Paul begins this, for God is my witness as to un, how unceasingly I make mention of you. And he says, I'm bringing, I'm almost making an oath here. This is a very serious thing. He says, in a lot of his letters, he starts it with churches that he knows well. And he just, he just introduces himself. But here, he now invokes the name of God to witness that what he's saying is true. Now, why would he do that? Because they didn't know him. They, they, they had never seen him face to face. And Paul wants to make sure that they know that before God, he is, his conscience is clear and that what he is saying is true. And Paul says, I'm actually on the way to Jerusalem. And they might be going, yeah, sure, you want to come here. <laughs> You're delaying again doesn't seem like you want to be here. And Paul says, actually, I want you to know the sincerity of it. And therefore, God is my witness. It is true. This is the historical circumstance in which Paul wrote. But in explaining that to the Romans, Paul also lets us in on a very important fact about his interaction with them. Notice, he consistently prayed for the believers in Rome. The end of verse 9 says, I mention you. And verse 10, he says, in my prayer. Paul prayed for his fellow believers, even those who didn't, he didn't know personally, and he prayed for the Romans. Now notice he says, I prayed unceasingly. I mention you unceasingly. And again, we've touched on that word before. He's not saying that he, he never did anything else but pray for them but rather that in periods of time, he consistently prayed for them. It's impossible to pray at all times in the fact that you actually have to eat, right? You, have to, you actually have to think about, at least I hope you're thinking when you drive. There are, so there are times where our, our attention is otherwise, but he was always consistently bringing them in prayer. And we are commanded to pray for one another. We are often told in, in, in Ephesians 6.18 that we are to what? Remember the saints in prayer. So the question then is, how often do we pray for one another in the church? How do we pray for one another in our own families? Are we, are we those who are consistently praying for them? This was Paul's pattern. I pray for you. And I, I, want, I, want, I want you to recognize, as God is my witness, I continually always bring you up in prayer. This is, this is how I think of you. We belong to the family of God. We belong to the, the church, universal church. We belong even maybe to the local church. So the question is, do we pray for other believers? Do we pray for those in our family? 
Do we pray for those in our local church? Do we pray for believers and missionaries overseas? Do we pray for believers that we don't know? Do we hear of churches being persecuted and we pray for them as a church? Are we those who continue to pray even for believers in other countries as we see them even on the news? Are we a praying people? Do we pray for other believers? Well, how do we start? Today. How do we start? Today, right? One of the things that we can be as, as a church is be deliberate in our conversations. Be deliberate. Don't come to church with, with an empty mind and an empty palate. Come here purposely and say, in our conversation, as we, and steer our conversations and say, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Right? Let's have spiritual conversations about spiritual issues and then, and then let's, let's just ask. We send out a church list. We've got all your phone numbers. There's a place to start, right? Start going down the list, right? You're going to come to certain names and you're going to say, I, I don't have a clue what to pray for them. Guess what? When you get back in that purposeful conversation, how can I pray for you? You're going to find out, right? And we have to be recognized that we need to be humble enough to give our prayer requests and to be vulnerable and that we need to be those who are actually concerned for people and not just nosy. Let us be a church that holds one another up in prayer. Let us be purposeful. It's easy just to let it go. It's easy just to, yeah, no, that's a good idea. I, I see it, in, I see it in, the, in the text, Pastor. But let's be purposeful. Start today and make it a habit. Well, there's one more commitment that Paul makes. It's not just that he is thankful for them and it's not just that he prays for them, but he actually enjoys fellow believers. We need to enjoy being with them. Look at verse 10. Always in my prayers making requests. What's that request, Paul? If perhaps at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. This is Paul's request. This is what he's always asking God. He wants to be what with them. He wants to visit them, not as a tourist, but for the purpose in keeping with what God's great eternal plan of redemption. And he says, I, I want to come to you by the will of God. And sometimes we think that the will of God, it, we, it's almost like a document. It's almost like, you know, the will that you've got in the cupboard. But we forget that will has the idea of desire and intention. And Paul says, I want to come to you, not because I've strong-armed God, because I've asked him enough times and I just hope that maybe he'll, he'll finally give in to me. But he says, I, I, want, I want to come because it's God's desire for me to come. I want to submit my plans to his plans, and I only want to come if it is God's divine sovereign plan that I come. 
Now, it seems kind of strange to belabor the point that we need to submit our will to God's will because it seems obvious, but in this day and age where people are teaching that, no, you don't pray for the will of God. In fact, that's harmful for you. you if you ask the will, you've actually got to tell God what your will is because you have to speak it into existence. And God needs permit his, your permission to work in this world. Well, not only is that blasphemous, it's completely against everything that Scripture teaches. Our Lord Jesus Christ certainly had no problem teaching your will be done. When, he taught, when his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, what did he say in Matthew 6, 9, and 10? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not, Lord, here's your will, but your will be done. Submitting to the will of God. Jesus set that example in his incarnation when he, in the garden of Gethsemane as he prayed our example in the flesh. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but what? Yours be done. Jesus Christ had no problem in his humanity submitting his will to the Father. Nor did Paul in the early church. Romans 15, 32, Paul says, I want to come to you, what? By the will of God. Acts 18, 21. I will return to you again if God's wills. 1 Corinthians 4, 19. I will come to you soon, what? If the Lord wills. Paul had no problem laying down his will before God and wanting his sovereign purposes to be done. And so Paul lays his desires to the will of God and prayed according to his will. Now listen, Paul prayed and he laid down his will, but he desired, what did he desire in this verse? That I may succeed in what? coming to you. Now, Paul was not in content with an engaged, long-distance relationship with the Romans. Right? He didn't say, hey, I'll just write a letter and get this over with. These people are a bit bo bothersome, and it's a long ways to go, and I keep getting the door slammed, and I'm discouraged, so I'd, I'll just write a letter and leave it at that. He doesn't do that. He longs for a face-to-face -face encounter with them. He wants to be with them. He doesn't want a long-distance relationship. He wants a personal relationship. He wants to have fruit with them. He wants to be encouraged by them, and he wants them to be encouraged by him. Now, I want you to think about this. In your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, is your goal just to continue on in this life and to know the Lord Jesus Christ as good as you can in this life? Are you satisfied with your relationship with Jesus Christ? You shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. Our goal as believers is to what? To see the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are now children and have not appeared as yet as what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him what? Just as he is. That's the hope of every believer. Everyone who has this fixed hope on him, what? Purifies himself. The reason I live a pure life is because I want to see Jesus Christ in the flesh. Second, Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Now we see dimly, 
But what? Then what? Face to face. Paul even preferred it. I prefer to be absent from the body as to be at what? Home with the Lord. Philippians 1.23, I, I desire to, to depart and to be with Christ for that is much better. Our, our desire isn't just to continue to, to, as it were, send prayers up to Jesus Christ and, and to read about him in the word of God, though that's the only way we can see him now. But our ultimate goal is to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory and splendor in heaven. Our relationship with God it does not stop here. He, God will tabernacle with us in eternity. And remember, our spiritual relationships mirror, and even in heaven, mirror what we have here on earth. And God has something to say about our relationships here in heaven, here on earth. God, we... we don't and should not be satisfied with long-distance relationships between believers here on earth. Scripture's clear that face-to-face relationships are better. This is why Paul continues to pray that he might see them. Philippians 1.8, he says, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of what? Christ Jesus. I want to see you face to face. I want to be with you. Remember when we were in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. We day and night keep praying most earnestly that we might see your next text. Oh, sorry. Email. Skype. Phone call. No. Your face. Your face. And may complete what is lacking in your face. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus Christ our Lord direct our way to you. So Paul, though he never met them, desired to see them. He desired to meet them. He desired to be with them face to face. Well, again, the first implication is simply this. You ought to enjoy the fellowship of other believers face to face. Which means you need to gather on Sunday. Hebrews tells us that we are not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. It's not good enough to stream. It's not good enough to watch TV. And this is why we don't believe in multi-site churches where you go and you look at a screen in a group instead of being in with the leadership of the church. And again, we touched on it. It's not just walking in and out. It's not just being here, as we would say, so that we can count ahead and then you scoot out. But we ought to actually pursue relationship with other believers. It should be our desire. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They, are in the, they have been saved by our Savior. He has beloved them, then we should love them as well.
Now remember Acts. They were sharing all things together. And it just occurred to me, and, and I think it is that one of the things that they did in the early church is they used to gather around food. Isn't that amazing? I don't know how that fit, but it just came, right? They meet around food. They would share a meal together because there was fellowship together and time spent together and they enjoyed one another. One of the things that we are losing in this electronic age is the ability to actually have face-to-face interaction with one another. And we are raising a whole generation of people who cannot handle being in a room face-to-face with somebody else and interacting with them. You were created for fellowship. You were created for fellowship with God. You were created for fellowship with one another. He created Adam and Eve. He said it's not good for man to be alone. And he created the family and then he created the church. You were never meant to be alone. You were supposed to be 3D with other people. And now we go out with people and we're really not with them. They're not with us because they're spending half of their time communicating with people who are not there. And the pho- they are chained to their phone. I'm going to EMP, I think, the phone system. And so I would say this, when you're out with people, put your phone away. Don't ever interrupt your conversations with that phone as people are texting you. They can wait. I've often said, if they're in the ditch, they'll be in the ditch when you get out. Right? But do not take the fake text and email And think, replace that with relationships. It's not real. God has created you for face-to-face. There's blessing seeing each other face-to-face. And if you want to grow relationships, do not grow your relationships online. This is not where you get to know people. God wants you face-to-face. That is not intimacy. It's easy to say stuff and to do stuff and to hide stuff behind the keyboard. There's no substitute for face-to-face relationships. Paul, even though he had not met them, he, d- he wanted to see them. Sure, people are messy. Things are difficult but it is God's intended way. Let us be a church who's known for enjoying one another and that our relationships are not based upon texts and phone. Right? It's, what, it's nice to make a phone call. It is. And it's nice to send people a text. But do not substitute that from face-to-face communication. We need to be face to face. Paul desired it. We should desire it. 
we should want to be with each other. This is how Paul interacted with the Romans. Let us be a church that is known for that. Let us be thankfully thanking God for one another and the work in each other's lives. The only way we're going to know that if we're actually enjoying our time together, right? And then we can pray for that believer because we've spent time with him, enjoyed time with him, thankfully. And then we will be a church that is living out what God has intended for us. And we will be individuals who will have these commitments made in our life and we will have the church to grow and we will be a blessing and we will be blessed because it is God's way. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you as we peek over Paul's shoulder this morning and see his heart and his commitment to the Roman church. And I pray that you would give us Paul's heart and that you would give us Christ's heart and that we would again be a church that is known for our relationships together as we give thanks to God for one another, as we pray for one another, and as we fellowship together. And we pray that we would do this in your name and for your glory. In your name, amen.